I'm Hillary. And I'm Sandra. Today on the podcast, we are really lucky to be talking to Rita Olink. Now, transition is something that we have talked about before on The Quick and the Dirty, but Rita's story is a little different because she transitioned later in life at the age of 53. We are so excited about this conversation and we think you are going to love Rita Olink. The Quick and the Dirty Podcast with Hillary Welch and Sandra Plagakis. Hillary, have we talked about all the people who slip into our DMs? I feel like we've done this before, except as my marital status has changed, the sheer quantity of DMs has also changed as well. I'm just wondering, is being single and mature like a dirty kind of a thing now? Because I feel like so many men have been sliding into my DMs and I don't know if they think that just because I'm single, I'm desperate. What do you think? I I don't think it's that. I think uh, where there is opportunity, one must (laughs) delve. And uh, I think, like, for a lot of people, they don't know how to be alone, but you are not that person. No, I, I am, I, I am preferred, um, there's only one place I want to be, and that is alone. Uh, <laughs> I think people assume that when you're single, you are open to dating and having a relationship and blah, 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 blah. And I know one thing, and, I, and you know what? We spoke to Carlin Costa about this last time. The worst thing she said I could do was jump into a brand new relationship so soon after I left my husband. So I think the I term agreed. was getting dickmatized. Oh, getting dickmatized. I don't need to get dickmatized. She told me to get the dick, but she told me not to get dickmatized, which I would never do anyway. But, <laughs> I, I, okay, I just want to tell you that, that every single social media platform I have has now given single men opportunity to find me, slip into my DMs, and I just want to know how many women are open to strange men who slide into their DMs and you know, try to date you. Cause I just, I don't like that. And I know that's the way people date now, but I know likey. I think it's a little bit weird too, because people think they know you, right? When you work in media, you're on the radio every day, people listen to your show and they feel like they know you because you're good at your job and that's what you're trying to do. Thing is, you don't know them. That's very true. <laughs> One guy slipped into my uh, my DMs, and then, uh, I, first of all, his spelling was the biggest turnoff. The fact that his spelling <laughs> was literally like a child's, I thought, okay, first of all, you're an idiot. Uh, and secondly, uh, then he tried to tell me he was a firefighter. And I thought, you're still an idiot. I don't care. You can't spell. Get out of my get out of my place. Get out of my get out of my DMs. <laughs> Well, you think I'm going to do flirt with you? I don't have time to flirt with you. Go away. So I don't know. I just, I don't know why I'm so mad about all these people sliding into my DMs. Two years ago, I would have been mad. Had no, remember I was mad that no one ever sent me dick pics? Yeah, yeah that's a good thing. I think it's because when you say, hey, I'm single again, people think that that's you saying, hey, I'm single again. Like it's an advertisement. <laughs> no, it's not, but it's, but it's not an invitation. It's a, it's a fact. You know, I don't know. I know I'm adorable and I know I'm irresistible, Hillary. I'm just asking the kind men of the world to back the fuck off. Maybe it's because they know, like, you're a hot commodity and this commodity is in short supply and may not be on the market for very long because you are so awesome that they're like, I got to get in there while I can. Can I tell you what I actually think it is, right? Here's what I think it is. I think that when men see a woman who doesn't actually need a man, like I don't need a partner in my life. I don't need that. Uh, I, I had a partner I didn't want. So mm-hmm. I, I dealt with that accordingly. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to make it come out angry or whatever, but yes, I, I took care of what I needed to take care of and I've moved on. And I'm just saying, is it that guys see single women as a challenge? Like, do they think that women are not complete without having a partner? Well, no, I, you know what I actually think? I think that you are so fabulous and maybe they are not in your league and they're thinking she might just be damaged enough to consider me. <laughs> oh <my. laughs> 
Well, do you know what? Here's the funny thing. Um, I have a friend <laughs> who's single as well, and he told he he's gone online dating, and he said to me, and he hasn't online dated a, like a lot, but he did say to me that after a certain, like he said, after 45, for example, and he's over 45 as well. He said, after 45, your dating pool gets way, way, way smaller. And he said, in terms of the women that he meets online that are in his age range, he says they're either broken or crazy. (laughs) So being fabulous, you are really like supply and demand is up. I I think you're blowing smoke up my ass, but I'll also accept it. Thank you. (laughs) It's But you know what? It's funny is that if, if the dating pool for men is terrible like if if single women who are over 45 are either broken or crazy in his words then what it what about men over the age of 45 what's their problem i don't know and is that why is that why they go for younger women a lot of the time because they're not they have (laughs) they're still desperate to be in relationships (laughs) well i feel like men older men are have a desperate smell on them. You know what I mean? <laughs> they definitely have a desperation to them because they want to lock it in so that they don't have to go online dating in the real world because it's hard out there, especially or when you do want a relationship. Or if they were married before and had like a wife that did everything for them, they can't function as humans without another person. They, they need a seat filler. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's, that's funny because every woman I've met who is in the same situation as me, who is single and, you know, over the age of 45, gives zero fucks about finding a new person to share their life with because most of them are independent and have their shit going on and realize that it'll happen when it happens and there's no sense in, you know, desperately mm-hmm. looking for a partner. That's just a waste of energy. And for anything energy. else, there's, uh, well, trees or electronics. And but well, or let's be honest, and I'm going to put this right out here. There isn't anything easier in the world to get than dick. So come on. It's true. I mean, (laughs) so except when you're married, actually. (laughs) We are so excited to welcome to the podcast Rita Olink today. And Rita has a really inspiring story. Rita, in transition female a little later in life but we're gonna find out where she came from and where she is now welcome Rita Olink wow thank you so much for having me on your podcast well thank you so much for being willing to come on the podcast and you know even before we went to air said there isn't anything we can't ask you that will offend you uh you know I appreciate the fact that you um understand that people have a lot of questions for you and sometimes uh they probably aren't the kindest am i right about that oh there's uh there's that aspect to it but you know if you just uh, look at the person's heart uh, and very seldom are the questions out of malice Right. And you know what I've always said? It's the questions you don't ask that get you into trouble. Asking a question, you shouldn't be condemned for asking somebody an honest question with an open heart. And I totally agree with that, Rita. So um, you've got a pretty, like Hillary said, you have a pretty incredible story. Why don't we even start on this one? (laughs) (laughs) I I guess we can uh, say that uh, transitioning isn't something that's foreign to this podcast. We've talked about it before. Sandra, your son has transitioned and uh, at a much younger age than uh, Rita. Uh, Rita, how old were you when you knew you had to do it? When I knew I had to do it, I would be just about 54 years of age when I knew I I couldn't do this male thing anymore. I had to move on. So you were 54 years old, and how did you tell your friends and your family and the people around you? What was that like? Oh, my goodness. I'll tell you this. Uh, Mount Everest is a speed bump in a parking lot compared to that climb. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, so, you know. I, oh, my I, goodness. It was, uh, it was very, very difficult. Um, I've got four kids. I now have 10 grandkids. And we all have a good relationship now. My uh, poor wife at the time, you can imagine how this affected her. 
um, we have we had to uh, go our separate ways. Uh, very amicable. It's uh, a no one's fault sort of uh, arrangement. She just isn't uh, wired to be married to a woman, and I'm not wired to uh, play the role of a man anymore. So uh, a very sad uh, split up that we had to do. And uh, yeah, that was that was really tough stuff. Trying to tell my siblings, um, there are eight of us in the family, so I have seven people to tell, plus my mother who is still alive. That was incredibly difficult. And I was met with mixed reactions. Um, it took me a long while to get to the stage where I finally uh, had the surgery. So it's not a quick process by any means. And in the interval in between, um, my mother used to, I used to go see her every Saturday. And all she would talk about is me and my wanting to be a woman. It was, it was really difficult to have her come around. And what finally did it, well, you got to understand, my mom was going through the stages of Alzheimer's at the, at the time. So her memory wasn't as sharp as it used to be. Well, this one time I had to go um, and do a, some public speaking for the YWCA. They run the women's shelter here, and they were having a big conference from uh, for uh, shelters all across the country. So myself and a few others were going to do that. It was on a Saturday, and I'd let my mom know ahead of time, saying, hey, um, I won't be able to pick you up this Saturday because I have this conference to go to. She says, well, I want to go. I said, mom, you don't understand. I'm going to be dressed as Rita. That's the only way I could say it to her that she would understand. She said, I don't care. I want to go too. <laughs> well, this is a few weeks ahead of time. So the chances of her remembering weren't that good. But I phoned up the YWCA and uh, told them and they got all excited and said, yes, uh, please bring your mom and come early and we'll have lunch and you can have lunch with her. And I thought, well, that'd be nice. Thank you so much. A few weeks went by and it was the Saturday. I phoned mom. She had remembered and she was ready. So I went and I picked her up. Wow. I went and I picked her up and my sisters brought her home. And then I had to go to a neighbor's to change because I wasn't allowed to change at home. And uh, well, this was when you were still with your wife. Yes, and my wife was uh, happened to be working that day as well. So I went and I changed, and I came back. And as I walked in the house, my mom's uh, jaw just dropped, and she looked at me with this look on her face that just said, "Wow." I said, "Look, mom, sorry, we're running really late. Just get in the car. We'll have to do all the introductions later." Put her in the car. I had some soup for the church because they were having an, uh, a potluck. I brought that up there and we're running behind. And oh my goodness, just trying to keep my mom in the car was all I could do. We get to where we are doing the public speaking. I get out and I'm towing my uh, case behind me with all our pamphlets. Mom is coming along and I, and I turn to her and I says, Mom, please hurry up. We're, we're running really late. And she's standing there, and she's just looking at me with, with her mouth open. And she said these words to me that I'll never forget. She says, you're beautiful. Oh. Well, I just about broke down and cried right there. Oh. Uh, I didn't want my mascara running, so I looked like a raccoon, so I held back <laughs> the tears. Was that the first time that she had ever seen you dressed as Rita? Yes, it is. What it, yes, and... it was the very first time. So we went in, and we sat down, and we had lunch. They put us up at the head table. I didn't realize it. It was a national conference, so not just regional. Oh, wow, yeah. So we had 67 people, the movers and shakers in, uh, in women's shelters from across the country, and we were the guest speakers for that, uh, myself and a few of my other uh, PG and herself's uh, associates. When I went to speak, um, 
My mom grabbed my arm and said, don't you dare change your word of what you were going to say. And I said, okay. And we got up and did our speech. I said, but I will acknowledge you're here, which I did. Come question time, my mom had a question for her. For her. She stood up in front of everybody. She says, well, I've got a question. And I thought, oh, no, here it comes. And she says, um, basically, the question boiled down to, was it hereditary? Because way back in the family tree, way, way, way back, there was a person that was in the family that used to dress up in women's clothes. And she thought that somehow she'd passed it down to me. Well, there is no correlation between uh, that makes it hereditary. But this was her question. And that was the start of my mom being able to accept me. How, that must have wow. meant everything to you that day. Everything. Oh, my goodness. I cherish that day. I have a necklace that I got for her and I, the heart-shaped pendant. And inside where the picture goes, instead of a picture, we have the words inscribed. The words that she said at that conference. This is my son and also my daughter. November 7th, 2015. Oh, that's really special. Now, Rita, you came from a very religious background. How was that and uh, and transitioning through that community? Oh, my goodness. Um, yes. Okay. First, let's go way back and uh, to when I first had feelings like this. I was 12 years old growing up on a farm on a back road out behind Chelmsford. Chelmsford is a little town near Sudbury, Ontario. And uh, our family was nominally Catholic. So the teachings on the gender roles was very, very strict. I knew my place. My dad was a big, strong man's man, and my mom was a woman's woman. So there was a, there was an old chicken coop that had been converted to storage. I was up in the loft. Uh, an aunt had stored some clothes there, and I was dressing in them, and I didn't know why. I had three names for myself, freak, deviant, and pervert. And that's because of my Catholic upbringing. Uh, years go by, I, I did the hyper-masculinity thing. I really tried to be a better boy. That would make it go away. And then later on in life, if I try harder to be a better man, I can make this go away. Well, it doesn't really work that way. The thing with gender dysphoria, it only increases with time. It never decreases until you do something about it. So, okay, moving on. Uh, I finally get married. I've kind of got a lid on the dressing, but I'm still doing it from time to time. Um, I become an evangelical Christian. And there are things I thought, well... So that's like even more traditional, well, right? Very fundamentalist. Very, very strict. Very wow. Uh, the Bible is everything. Oh, you must have been and tormented on the inside. I was trying my hardest to pray it away. Yep. And if it was, if you could pray it away, I could convert all of you to here within about two minutes. <laughs> so you, you, <laughs> there's no saving us, Rita. Don't even she's, worry. She's far gone. I will speak to that. Yes. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'll have company anyway. That's perfect. So you, 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 you tried to pray it away and uh, you built a life that you thought that you had to live. Uh, and um, what was the tipping point for you when you knew that you couldn't go on anymore? Was there a moment? Was there an incident? Was it just a buildup? What was it? it? It was a buildup. It just gets worse day by day, and it's just consuming you. I'm sitting at work rolling a pencil across the desk with my, with my fingers because it's consuming everything with me. I just, I just can't do it anymore. And that's when I decided to come out to family and let them know that uh, this is me and that I needed to be out in public more. I needed, I needed to be a normal me, whatever that meant. And uh, so the journey begins. And that is the same time that I told the church that I was with. And at the time, I was the one doing their PowerPoint. I was 
putting all the songs up on the screens. Um, it was a big church, and uh, and uh, we had. And you were heavily involved, right? I was heavily involved. So, and I was the one that would take the pastor's sermon and uh, put it into PowerPoint slides and present it while he was speaking. I mean, I was extremely involved. Well, as soon as I told him that I was that I needed to be out in public and told him about being Rita, I was immediately removed from all that. And all I was allowed to do was sit in the pew. And uh, nothing was said to anyone in the congregation, but they're all wondering, like, how come I'm not up there anymore doing the job that I always did? I was ostracized. I was frozen out. And uh, it was really hard to go to go to church. Now, my wife worked every second weekend. So there was a weekend I would go with her. And then the next weekend, I'd have to go myself and just sit there, with, which was absolute agony. Well, it's one Sunday. I just couldn't bring myself to go. And, but I always went to church. So the time was slipping by and finally uh, it was too late for me to go to church. And I remembered the little United Church that's just up around the corner from where our house is. I drive by it all the time, so I'm very familiar with it. And I knew what time their service was. So I decided, well, okay, I didn't make that one. I'll just go up there. I'll go to church. I've been elite. I've I've done it. Well, I was dressed as a male, of course. Um, I went up to that church, and I fell in love with it because the words I heard weren't condemnation. They weren't fire and brimstone. And it was just such a breath of needed fresh air. So immediately I... Uh, I contacted the pastor there, Reverend Aaron Todd. She's such a wonderful person. And I asked her if we could go for coffee. Longtime friend of mine, yeah. Yeah. And I asked her if uh, we could go for coffee. There's something I had to tell her. Well, a little later during the week, we went out for coffee to a local coffee place. She was wondering if I was some sort of an act murderer or something like this, some sort of serial killer. Because <laughs> I'm this great big lump of a guy asking this woman out for coffee. So I get her out there, and we beat around the bush for a bit, and I finally tell her about my being Rita and that, you know, I was wondering if I could go to her church as myself. And she said, well, let me look into this first. Now this here was um, this here be in October of uh, of that particular year, and she said um, Christmas is coming up. Why don't you just keep coming the way you are for now? And in the new year, I promise that I'm going to speak to everybody, and uh, we'll come to a, a consensus on this. And I said, thank you very much. So for the next few months, every second Sunday, I was there and. And the congregation got to know me. Well, in January, she started visiting with everyone and having a conversation with them, every single person in that congregation. And then in February, they were having their little uh, church meeting about it, uh, what to do. And she said she would call me after it it was over, which she did. It was a uh, very literally day on a... And I was out with the snowblower, and I had my cell phone tucked in my shirt pocket on vibrate so I could know when I got the call, which I did. And she called me up, and I'll never forget it. And she says, Rita, she says, uh, we've had our meeting. She says, and we have a decision, and it's unanimous. And I said, okay, and I was ready for the rejection. And she says, the church wants you to know that you're welcome to come however you want, whenever you want. Well, it was just like spring had sprung, and I'm crying, and tears are freezing to my cheeks. But as far as I'm concerned, it's a spring day outside. I was just crying. I was so happy. And then she says, oh, and she says, and there's one more thing. And I thought, okay, here's where the shoe drops, and here's the condition. And I says, okay, what is it? She says, the church wants to apologize to you. And I says, 
whatever do you mean? What could they possibly want to apologize for? It said they want to apologize to you for you feeling you even had to ask. Wow. That's the most that says a lot. Christian thing that I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. Can we just go back to uh, your original um, part of the story where the original church you were with um, sort of shunned you? Not sort of. They did shun you and ostracize you in your own words. How did yeah. you? How did you... Deal with that as someone who'd always been a member of the church, as someone who had obviously a profound belief system in the in religion and in the church. How did you reconcile that in your own brain? It was very difficult to reconcile that these people that uh, profess to love me so much that just as soon as they they found out a truth about me um, would treat me so badly, and it made me question everything that I'd been taught. Because obviously, they they were missing something if they couldn't handle me, and uh, I could have become very bitter at the time. But uh, bitterness is just a punishment you inflict upon yourself, and I decided not to go down that road. And I said, I said to myself, well, then if they don't want me, I'll have to find a place that did. Actually, one of the pastors in a meeting with me told me to go to a particular church in town. He says, it's a church for you people. So it made me, uh. it made me feel like a leper. So as far as I was concerned, I was a leper. I was an outcast. Yeah. And uh, that's why. So what made you want to continue to seek out the church? Because, like, after being treated so poorly, well, I would imagine you would have felt kind of I don't know, angry at God. Well, you see, it's not God's fault. God's pulling for me. Um, this is about people, not about God. Religion is, is people speaking on behalf of God. And uh, just like I wouldn't want somebody to blame me for something I didn't do, I sure didn't want to blame God for something he, he or she didn't do. And uh, that's why I said, I'm not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I have to find out if there's any real truth to, to this religion. And like I say, my well, going to uh, see Reverend Aaron Todd's church, it was St. Luke's at the time. It's called Grace United now. Um, she re She really reinforced the belief in God because uh, she was so accepting, and so was the congregation. And their position was that I was wonderfully made, and that there is absolutely nothing wrong with me, but there's something wrong with a religion that excludes people. So that's what helped keep my faith alive. And I'll say, I'll say this: the whole journey has made my faith deeper, not shallower. Uh, that that was actually going to be my next question on how it had changed. Uh, I, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but, you know, I'm not surprised given what we already know about uh, certain religions when it comes to anyone who is in the LGBTQ plus community. They have not been treated kindly or fairly by so many different religions. So I'm happy to hear that you found a place that you were happy and who accepted you as you are, as it should be. Um, but I want to know, I want to know this beyond religion. How long did it take for your children to come around to, for your children to fully accept you? Because it, you know, it, it, you were in your fifties and uh, how were you not celebrated for finally living your, your authentic life? Cause I would celebrate that. Well, you really got to feel for family because for me, I've had this, agonizing journey all my life towards accepting myself and it took all those years to do so right. to try and expect family that all of a sudden you're going to tell them and they're going to be able to accept you in the moment is asking way more of them than what you really should as far as i'm concerned right um now they're on their journey not only does the person like myself transition but every person that knows us has to transition in their, in their belief system and in their thinking 
and then they're identifying with me. So transition just doesn't happen to the trans person. It happens to everyone around them. And you have to give time and space for that to grow. Well, you know, you're preaching to the choir. Uh, My son is uh, 19 years old. He's turning 20 in uh, in August. And uh, he transitioned um, eight years ago now. So I I recognize that it's a process. And uh, some people in your life will leave it quietly who can't get on board and who don't understand, to which I say who gives a shit, uh, then they shouldn't be in your life. (laughs) Uh, But were there people who absolutely would not accept you for who you were and are? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's there's always people that uh, are in that camp. And uh, for me, my heart, I don't say, well, like, I can't really say, like, who gives a shit? I mean, they were important in my life, mm-hmm. and I do give a shit. And uh, it's sad that they no longer choose to be part of that and that they can't make the journey with me. But I have to keep moving on. And uh, that's what I look at, and it's with sadness that I say farewell to them. Um it's too bad. There's those that are very antagonistic about it, in which case I say, I'm glad you're no longer part of my life. And uh, they all hurt. They all hurt tremendously because these are relationships. They're not something you give up easy. With my kids, it was really hard. And it's not until uh, just two years ago that we finally mended all offenses and uh, we're establishing a, a new normal. And two years ago, almost to the day that I was finally able to visit with all my grandchildren, because, of course, what are the kids going to think? That's one of the big things people hide behind. Well, all my grandkids are taking it absolutely fine. Of course they are. Kids, kids don't learn how to hate. Kids, kids yeah. only know oh, how to yeah. love. Kids don't. Kids only react to the way their parents react to things. So I think yeah. more parents need to take responsibility for the damage that they actually do to their kids. And if they made it a thing, that's totally on them, not their kids. Their kids are fine. Their kids are here for a good time, <laughs> like all kids are. And I also think that, like, publicly, this, uh, this transition is happening in a less secretive way for a lot of people. People are becoming more open to it, and that makes the the understanding and the earlier acceptance easier for a lot of people. Oh, oh yeah. The last 10 years, there's been a, a tremendous progress, especially the last five. And uh, now it's uh, so much more known about it that uh, it's easier for families to adapt than it used to be. Before it was like, what are my neighbors and my friends going to think? And, and how will I be looked upon? You know, the, the family member, how will I be looked upon? And uh, somehow it uh, it stains them. Um, those sort of things are going by the wayside now, thank goodness. And it's, uh, it's becoming a lot easier to come out and a lot easier to come out at a young age. Remember, when I was a kid, there was nothing about this. There's nothing uh, like you we're... We're reaching back 50-some years to when I was in, you know, I was 12 years old. So uh, the world is a whole different place. Right. And, you know, you, when you say that you. I'm so excited for young people right now. Well. Now they have a chance. Now they have a chance, and now they have been having the conversation. Uh, I mean, I guess probably when Caitlyn Jenner, she she was the first one when she came out in such a public way. People were having the conversation. And then after that, um, you you obviously transitioned before all of that. So like you said, it's not it was not something people were talking about and people were sweeping it under the rug and people were uh, probably vilifying you because of it. Oh, yes, it was. uh, The things that were said about me by some people were such absolutely cruel things. Oh, yeah, of course. And this horrible. This develops this develops character, though. It's going to happen. So there's no arguing, well, of course, it should not have, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't happen, but it does. So what are you going to do with what is happening and what is going to happen? You can let it either tear you down or you can let it uh, fortify you. 
and I chose the latter. And uh, yes, they say cruel things. Well, that just drove me harder to be a better person and to be a stronger person and to be a more authentic person. The more they questioned my my identity, the more it cemented my identity. That's the way I used it. Yeah. I love sitting around the dinner table with my kids because uh, uh, my youngest, one of her friends, uh, is, I wouldn't say transitioning, but uh, has changed their pronouns and gone from uh, she, her to uh, he, they. And to listen to my kids correct our pronouns, because it, it was a gradual sort of, it was a gradual transition. And because my kids spend time in two houses, we don't always know what's going on, but they are like the biggest cheerleader for uh, for Jamie. They just correct you. Mm-hmm. They just call it out. And it's so normal for them. And it's so wonderful. Yes, it's a whole new world. And I worked hard uh, with TG and ourselves. We did a lot of work here in Northeastern Ontario. Um, a lot of education, a lot of advocacy work. And uh, we worked hard to get this uh, get this world a better place. It was our group that uh, was the instigator for the Conversion Therapy Act here in Ontario, the ban conversion therapy. Oh, yes. Oh, that originated horrible. with us up here in Sudbury. Wow. So provincially, that's where that came from. And federally, we're one of the instigators for having the federal act that's now before the Senate that will ban conversion therapy right across the country. So... Uh, now, is that something that was suggested to you at one time from your religious group? Oh, of course. Of course. Get rid of it. That's part of the pray the gay away, pray the trans away. Um, if you go through this process, you can do away with it. I was so tired of all that that I did not participate, which is another reason for being ostracized. Um, yeah, that was a very difficult chapter in my life. Now that you have moved on and you found, let's just say, your people at uh, this church and uh, all this love in your life, have you ever reconnected with old members of your congregation, of the past congregation? Has, your, has the old church changed their stance on, on uh, trans people at all, given what, where we are today as a society? No, no, there's uh, only two people from that other church that I've had contact with, just to show you how uh, how deep it runs. At one point, I was even written into their constitution. How? Oh, that um, they wrote in that there'd be no gay marriages and that um, a person's identity would be based basically on their genitals. Good God. That's basically, that's basically what it is. And that was written into the Constitution specifically because of your presence in their congregation? Yes, because of my coming out to them, that they didn't want somebody else wow. coming into the congregation that was trans, identifying as a woman, and then wanting to be involved in the women's uh, aspects of the church. So just to be clear, Rita, they they preach love and, and uh, do they preach love and acceptance? And then, oh my goodness, yes. But no. but only if you fit into their what they deem to be appropriate. N- nothing exactly. outside of that. Exactly. Well, fuck them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of what I did. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, you did. I can't even handle. I, like I, when I hear that, I just I, you know, I, I, it it it. You went through it, and I can't even imagine what it did to you emotionally uh, to be shunned and ostracized, but then to find, you know, your your new space. But, you know, just I have a a, a transgender son, and to know that there are still people in this world who do have hate in their heart, but they disguise it in the name of religion makes me sick to my stomach. That there are people, it's it's, it's, it's sickening to know that there are these people in this world. That if I, I'm not a, I'm not a violent person. I'm a lover, Rita, not a fighter. But I would like to backhand <laughs> every single one of them. 
She will mama just, bear it, it, anyone. And, I, and I've, I've told my son, there's going to be people in this world who hate you for the sake of hating you. And they're going to do it in the name of religion. And you just have to turn, the, you have to keep moving because there's nothing you can yeah. do for, for some people who have been indoctrinated to a point that they actually believe the shit that spews out of their pastor's mouth. So anyway, well, yeah. I, I, I have to apologize, Rita, on my, uh, I hope you don't think I'm being vulgar, but that is who I am as a human. I am, I am not a fan of organized religion in any way, shape or form. Um, I certainly respect your decision, of course, in Hillary's to be a part of it. But I, I just want to make it clear. I, I, I do not, I do not love organized religion for that very reason. And I, well, I can, yeah, I can, I can empathize with you. But I just, uh, just for myself, I know that there's a lot more to it than uh, just what uh, certain people will say. Right. I am very saddened that uh, organized religion is used as a club to beat so many people over the head with. Yep. Um, and it's certainly not in the Bible at all. Uh, because I, I'm very, very well-versed with the Bible. And uh, I'll tell you, it is not in there. <laughs> Never was. So uh, it's prejudices that, they've, that they use the name of God to justify. And uh, I find that very, very troubling. And my passion right now is to go back to the churches and have a discussion with them, and I've already started doing that. I want to go back to evangelical churches and sit down with them and have a discussion and let them know what they're doing. Do you feel like it's and, like uh, knocking your head against a wall? Will anybody listen? I mean, the, these organizations know what the world is right now. They know that the world has changed. They know that the LGBTQ plus community is here to stay. And certainly they have picked up a newspaper and read a book on the subject and know that um, it's not a choice. They must know yeah. those things. So knowing and now fully understanding, uh, how could they possibly hate or ostracize anybody who is living their authentic life okay i've already had some success so um and why go back because there's a difference between reading it and someone making it personal right you know it's about those gays those transgenders but when they're sitting in front of somebody and her name is rita and i'm a person and i'm here because you're hurting people like me you see, there's a lot more at stake than just myself. What about the kids that sit in those pews with their parents and they happen to be trans or they happen to be gay and they're listening to this stuff come across from the pulpit? The suicide rate amongst trans persons runs at 43%. Yeah. Trans Pulse Project, that's Canada statistics. Okay. Somebody's got to stick up for these kids and somebody's got to go to these places and tell them, look, you have these, you have the young ones that are in your church that you don't even know. And you could be killing them with your words without even knowing it. Somebody has to do that. And that's where I feel called to, uh, to go and give them a voice. And what I use instead of uh, using a confrontational approach I use a loving approach. Here's me. If you want to say something bad, say it about me and say it to me. But I'm here to tell you what's, oh, what's going on. You say you love, and, you know, for the most part, they want to love. They've just been steeped in these lies, and they don't know how. So somebody has to go to them and, and say, look, I'm, I am a person that came out of your background. You hurt me, and you almost cost me my life. I went through some very long suicidal years. You nearly cost me my life. Do you want to be responsible for one of your young ones? And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing the effect that that has. It's a sobering thing. And I said, I really don't care what you believe. I said, what I do care about is what you say, because what you say is going to kill somebody. There's a lot more at stake. The education is so important. Yeah. yeah. 
And what you've got to do is instead of taking it, they say education is the most important thing, is it? And I disagree. It is not. Education is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Um, inspiration is the most important thing. When you inspire somebody and then they have the hunger to learn, only then will it sink in. And that's what happens when I go to an evangelical church and I sit down with their leadership and I have a conversation, just just me with them. And let them ask your questions. Let them ask all their uncomfortable religious questions and personal questions and let them get to know me and the struggle that I've gone through and my family's gone through. And then... And then think about it. Leave them not to have to make a decision there, but go away and, and, and think about what they're saying. And so far, I've been having some very good reports that what's said across the pulpit has changed a lot. That must make you so happy to know that you are making a difference by getting in front of people and letting them see you and hear about your experience and your life. But you're right. It's easy for them to say, well, we hate all transgender people, but it's not easy to sit in front of somebody who's transgender who's done it. And now I, I, I know what you're doing. You've, you're, you're normalizing it in many ways by being there, getting in front of their faces and saying, listen, I'm just a person too. Uh, it, you know, exactly. that's it. And that's what we did with my son as well. We, we went to all the parties where all of his friends' parents were so that we made ourselves available to any questions that anybody had. We're just, uh, you know, we're just parents who have a child who is trying to live his authentic life. And you can either take it or you can leave it. But we wanted to be available for anybody who had any questions. And people are scared to ask questions. Did you find that too? Oh, like yeah. there are those that have no problem asking, but they are few and between because people don't want to make you uncomfortable well even in this interview how we started out you were afraid to ask uh, you know that you would offend that's why i go in and usually i say okay i say let's start off with the most uh embarrassing questions you can ask <laughs> and uh, when we do public speaking when it comes time for question period we always make sure that we have a couple of plants out in the audience that are given a question to ask that is very, very deep, very personal, and make everyone else cringe saying, oh, my God, I can't believe they asked that, and uh, get those questions out there so it loosens people up to ask their questions. We also use something called... Well, because you never know how open somebody is. Uh, Rita, I can remember... Um... Erin, your new pastor, uh, she's a close friend of mine. And I can remember uh, when you had first approached her, her biggest fear bringing you into that new congregation and the reason she met with people was because it was an older congregation and she wanted to make sure, like knowing everything that you'd been through, she wanted to make sure that you were protected and not put in um, in a situation where people weren't prepared or she, because I mean, you were a, a first in that community for that community and, and she just didn't want you to, to have to go through any uncomfortableness again. But I, I, it was so amazing to see some of that older population just um, just accept and, and love and ask those questions, you know? Yeah, it was, it was great. And I think the, the big thing there was is they got to know me as a person first. So they got to know me under my male name, and they knew me as a person. So that, that made things a lot easier. I think that was a very wise approach. Because it wasn't the trans person coming into our congregation. It was this person in their congregation has this truth that they've been that they want to show us. And that made a huge difference. This older congregation, if they can make the journey, anybody can. Do you have any regrets? The one regret I have is that I wish I would have done it sooner. Wish I would have done it sooner in life. But that is a very common regret amongst us that are older ones that are the transition. If only I'd done this 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, but it wasn't possible then. So right. I try and brush that regret aside and, uh, and, uh, just live my life. 
Now, my biggest regret, and I'll be very, this is very personal, is uh, my poor former wife, what I put her through. I mean, I got married knowing there was something different about me. I didn't know to the extent or whatever. But for her, we had to end the marriage of 38 years, five months, six days, and six hours. And she's the most wonderful person in the world. And what I've done to disturb her life, I will always regret. And it's a guilt that I'll carry with me to the end of my days. And one could argue that I shouldn't be guilty about it or whatever, but that's the way I feel. And it's what we do to the ones that we love. And uh, the shame, the guilt, you know, that can be very unreasonable. But it's something I'm working with a therapist on. And uh, who knows, maybe someday I'll even have peace with myself. At the end of the day, we just have to do our best, try to live our authentic life as best as we can. And I have to say, Rita, it was such a pleasure speaking to you today. And I can't thank you enough for telling your story. I'm so glad that we met you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having this chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rita. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and say hi to Aaron for me. I certainly will. This episode is over, but the conversation doesn't have to be. Follow Hillary and Sandra on social. Instagram at Hillary on Air at Sandra Kiss 1053. Twitter at Hillary Welch at Sandra Kiss 1053. And on Facebook at Quick and Dirty Podcast. Got a question? Email Hillary and Sandra, the quick and the dirty at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can download the podcast each week to your mobile device to listen offline. Find the quick and the dirty on FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts.